This is Roof English Radio with Darenata, daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Roof. Hello, this is Roof English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for your company. Part two, then, of our look back at 2023 and the places we've been on Roof English Radio and its predecessor, the Roof English Podcast, over the course of the year. I spent a few days in the Westfjords in 2023 and I went to the old bookstore in Flattery. It's the oldest original store in Iceland, selling wonderful old Icelandic books by weight. Spent a lot of money there once, not realising how heavy books were. It also sells new publications, local products and luxury goods. It's also where you can see a genuine Icelandic house, unchanged since the 50s. The former home of Jon and Gudrun, who lived in the apartment from the year 1915 onwards. Nothing has been changed. There's a lot to see, so I went to see it with Eva Jovinson at the store for a look at the books and into the past and into that title of the oldest original store in Iceland. So we say it's the oldest original store in Iceland. Started by my great-grandfather, 1914. So it's been a family business for 109 years now, and I'm the fourth generation to take over the business. Oh. Always in the same building, same interior from day one, same family, and we can even trace every penny that's gone through the business really? from day one. Yeah. We have all the letters. And I can see some of them up there, actually, on the wall. I mean, I remember this being a beautiful building as much as anything else. The, the room that we're standing in now, this is where you used to have all of the old books that were sold by weight, and you've moved them through to the other side. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, we've been running the store for 109 years, and we were always changing our uh, uh, stock, both books and other products. So, uh, yeah, this uh, spring I rearranged the store. So I put up some new shelves in the entrance and put all these second-hand books there and, and keep the new books and, and local products and other products yeah. inside of the old store. And in here, there are some beautiful products that you can buy. Look, it's the second time I've seen that chocolate. That's made in Sudhavik, isn't it? Or in Sudhavik, rather. Yeah, that's yeah, made yeah. in Sudhavik. Yeah, yeah. And there you find all the, the best products from the Westfjords, all here in this shop. Yes. Then we also import a lot of products from all around the world, all from companies that are more than 100 years old. So we've been operating for 109 years, and we trust other companies <laughs> that can do the same thing. And then it's usually like a high-quality product with yes. great history and, and fits our store very well. Well, this is a beautiful shop, but uh, you know the heart of it, I think, is still the old book. So can we take a wander around and yeah. uh, move, to the, move to where the old books are? Where do you get them from uh, people just bring them in really yeah and maybe yeah people people are moving or someone yes. passed away or or something and then instead of throwing them away they bring them in here and i sell them cheaply by weight so they're all sold by weight yeah all secondhand books are sold by weight do you ever get something that you, that comes in that you think this is too good to be sold by weight this is a very special book that i have uh sometimes like if i'm personally interested in them i, I take them for myself but still, we sometimes get very valuable books, and I still just put them in the shelves on the same price as every other books. And if people know the value of the book, they just get lucky and can yes. can <laughs> yeah buy it on a yeah very cheap price. Yes, and these are all in Icelandic, pretty much. I think are they? Yeah, like ninety-five percent of them are in Icelandic, but there are yeah, a few in in other languages that yes. slide along. So has there been a, a book that's come along that's really surprised you and made you think, wow, that's that's really special? Yeah, for, for example, I got, I got a book in here that was the first edition of first uh, poet book of uh, Halldor Laxness. Mm. 
that was very horrible. <laughs> and I yeah, sold it to my friend for yeah, I charged him for just the, the weight of it, which yeah. was like hundred and fifty grams, hundred and fifty <laughs> kroners. But he demanded to to pay a little bit more and I accepted that. I think that's fair enough. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the, the building then, if we may. Um I I've I've got a memory of being through here. Now this is the we can go in here, can't we? Yeah. This is the area of the house that is still set up as a house. So just remind me who lived here. Yeah, so uh, one half of the building is the store. Then the other half is the, the original home of my great-grandparents. And absolutely nothing has been changed here since they passed away. So they moved into the store in 1915. My great-grandfather passed away in 1950 and my great-grandma in 1983. And after my great-grandfather passed away in 1950, my great-grandma didn't change anything. And then when she passed away in 1983, it has been standing like this ever since. So it's pretty much has been standing this for like 70, 80 years without any so tensions. This is what a Icelandic home would have looked like in 1950. Yeah, like an upper class uh, mm. home. Like they were, of course, the shop owner of the village. So they were quite wealthy compared to other people. So this is like a very cultural, educated and... and yeah, upper, upper class home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. a lot yeah. of books. Um, yeah, and a lovely bookcase, a beautiful bookcase on which these books are standing. There's a beautiful chair here, moving into what would have been the dining room. Yeah, so this is one. Uh, this is the dining room, yeah. and this was the main uh, like living room. The the other uh, room that we were in, or more just used on Sundays and when some guests was here. But this is where they would spend most of the time. Next There's a beautiful the radio there as well. Does that work? Yeah, it works. <laughs> well, listen to Roof here. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. So, so this has been receiving Roof for as long as Roof has been on the air, by the sounds of it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this time I came away with rather fewer books than I did on my first visit to the old bookstore in Flattery. Definitely worth a visit. Also in the Westfjords this year, I went to explore everyday life, specifically the museum of everyday life in Isafjörða. As the name suggests, it celebrates and explores the items that we use every day. The museum created by the artists Vida and Björk. I met Björk together with American interns Bella and Sofia. I had my senses stimulated and my memories provoked by the most interesting of everyday items. Museum, you know, like the everyday life is contains most of our uh, living moments, most of our hours, mm -hmm. uh, but it's quite overlooked in the grand narrative of things. Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, normal people's lives are overlooked in the grand narrative, yes. but they're what makes society, you know? They're what, make, what makes things tick, you know? Like the making the coffee and the chats and, yeah. and everything. Well, just coming through the, the first door here, there are some shoes and some Wellington boots and there are some lever arch files and we are really talking about everyday items, aren't we? Yeah, we're trying. I mean, everyday life is, is big. We would need a bigger space to contain all of it. Yes. <laughs> but we try to use uh, everyday items to get the, you know, the feeling of, uh, you know, the senses of, yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. And is this museum about trying to get a sense of life in Isafjörða or life generally? We're focusing on the life in the, in the area. But we have, uh, since it's like uh, so universal everyday life, that we have connecting points to uh, every visitor that comes in. So it, of course, it is universal in the sense of that everyone shares the same things in everyday life, you know, about just waking up, having friends, meeting, having coffee, arguing, whatever. Uh, but the stories themselves might be 
local. We're standing, as I say, largely in the, the main entrance here. There are two doors in front of me, one to the cinema, one to the sensory laboratory. So where do you think we should go? Um, we can go to the sensory laboratory, yes. So there is a curtain behind which we are going. We're entering a darkened room, not completely dark. There are jars all around the wall containing all sorts of different items. There are some, I think there are some sweets there. I think that is coffee. I think that is grass. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to identify some of these, of these items. What's going on in here? Those are everyday objects that are uh, like maybe particular to this area. Um, and we had a focus group, you can see on these photos here, uh, focus group who smelled those objects blindfolded and then did some free writing on what uh, came up. Because smell is such an interesting part because it's from like the unspoken part of the brain or like, un, you know. So those items are just a lot of like everyday items. And then we have this, uh, you know, uh, we have plastic poetry. It becomes then, in a way, like collective poetry from the things the focus group, um, you know, sat about. So, so this is this is essentially written by those focus groups and what they. Yeah. It's the one in English, maybe that we can. Yeah, they're all here in English. In English, sure okay. This so this is aftershave. Aftershave, yes. Uh, hi, grandpa. Hi, uncle. It's New Year's Eve, and the men are wearing aftershave. Lots of it. Man's perfume, Armani. Perfume, far too many unused or rarely used bottles on the shelf at my parents' house when I was a child. Were they collecting them? Probably presents. Reminds me quite a lot of my dad. Pretty strong smell. Dad going to a dance at Krusen. Aftershave, always going to a party with a new aftershave. Man, just getting out of the shower. Butterflies in my stomach. Excited to see my new boyfriend later. Puppy love. Shampoo, head and shoulders. Cheap aftershave, perfume sample, dance, snogging, vikare, someone from a town mm. nearby. Dad and his friends lifting glasses of rum and Coca-Cola on a trip to the beach, laughing and playing dominoes, always with a drink in hand, always having fun. The smell of grown-up man. And, uh, and this is one part of the, you know, we can do, you can yeah. do this, you can look at the items and then read what the collective uh, group has, but then you can also smell yourself. Well, I was, okay, I was about to do that because smell is very evocative, isn't it? And, and you can get a sense of that just from, from that one poem that we read here, so. And if you, yeah, if you close mm -hmm. your eyes, mm -hmm. just have a, have a smell of this. Mm. Just where does it, you know, bring you? Where do you? I think it's lipstick. Mm -hmm. Is it? it? It is. It is lipstick. Mm -hmm. My mother's lipstick, maybe. Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm thinking? It's definitely, yeah it, yeah, it is a lipstick. Is it an old one? It's an old one, yeah. <laughs> and probably the reason why, I mean, do you remember like where you had your first memory of lipstick, smell of lipstick? Well, I, I, I imagine it would have been of my mum's mm -hmm. lipstick. I can't yeah. imagine encountering mm -hmm. it. Maybe my grandmother's, possibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It has a very like, odd smell, right? It does. Mm -hmm. It does. And that's, you know, you can travel through your own memory, and that's the beauty of it, you know. It's like uh, you can both, you know, tap into the local memory, collective memory, but you can also just tap into your own and see what it, what it's, you know, the, how it relates. And again, some of the other items that I mentioned here, these sweets will bring back childhood memories for lots of people. They're the sort of sweets that you would buy probably from a jar like this, I guess, wouldn't you? I think this one is quite good if you close okay, your eyes. Closing my eyes. Mm -hmm. Ooh, mm. that's quite a strong smell. People don't really you know, smell this anymore. What is that? It's an ashtray. <gasps> so it is. <laughs> Do you know, it's the odd, because I used to smoke. 
used to I used to smoke, yeah. Um, a long time ago. And, of course, when the smoking ban came in in the UK, as it did in mm-hmm. Iceland as well. Yeah. When, did the, when did the smoking ban uh, arrive in Iceland? I don't remember, like, same, same time of the in the UK, yeah. 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 I mean, that was the smell of pubs. I'm really surprised I didn't get that, because that, that is... Maybe it needs to be refreshing, you know? It needs to, we, need, we need to smoke another need to cigarette. Smoke another cigarette. cigarette. Yes, yes, don't yes, get yes. me down that road again. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely, like, as, as a child, I would make ashtrays for my parents, you know, yeah. in school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a big part of culture, but now it's, uh, yeah, I don't think people necessarily know the smell of ashtrays, yes. but... That's the smell of... A night out, isn't it, in, in yeah. 2000? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, you know, being, being out. Yes, yes. <laughs> Anywhere, yeah. So that's the smell, you know. And, and, like, and like everything in this museum, you can both tap into what we have collected, but most of the time what people do is they collect to their own as well, you know. Of yeah. course, of course we're, all, we're all in this. <laughs> and do you take donations then, if someone has an item that they think might be of interest? Mm. Is that something you're interested in, or are you curating it the other way? Yeah, we're curating in the other way. We yeah. usually have a concept and then we collect. And, and of course, the items are, in a way, it's more the, like the histories and stories and the connection part that we are collecting. We're like a, you know, yes. yeah, museum of... But another thing with the items I wanted to show you is this, you know, is this uh, jar of, like, wet wool. And we had a person from Venezuela mm. in our focus yes. group. And blindfolded, like, you know, you know, having a scent. I never know how to say this in English, you know, yes. <laughs> smelling <Yes. laughs> this item. Uh, she just said, like, this resonates nothing. This brings me nowhere. Because she didn't have, didn't have a memory of, like... No, I don't either. You don't either, no. no but no. My, this is just, you know, everyone in Iceland has, of course, yes. a strong association with wet wool. Yes, yeah. yes. I suppose maybe if I was out in the rain and my jumper was getting wet perhaps <laughs> oh definitely yeah definitely yeah, yeah, but this yeah. is uh, yeah the museum of the everyday in isafjord at what you might say the other end of the westfjords in Holmavik, something that used to be an everyday occurrence and that is the practice of and indeed punishment of sorcery i went to the museum of sorcery and witchcraft in Homovic. It's a museum dedicated to the folklore and history of those practices in Iceland. There are some wonderful exhibitions, there are some permanent and special exhibitions on subjects such as the, I think, famous necropants, of which more in just a moment, also Icelandic magical staves and Icelandic grimoires, books of magic. I was guided through the exhibits by Anna Björg Thoranjinsdottir. So this, uh, this is skin. Well, I'm, I want to talk about the worm on the, on the box first, because yes. this is a magic to uh, get money. And this is a worm that actually lives in the sea, sea mouse. And it was believed if you catch a sea mouse and put it in a box with the hair of a virgin and a stolen coin, it will attract money from the sea. But the sea mouse does not want to live in the box, so you have to be able to uh, seal it in there. So then you have to have a skin of a wild cat and, uh, and, um, and engrave a magical symbol with blood. I think it was the first, yeah, it was the first period blood of a virgin. And, and put this, and they lay this over the box, and then the mouse will not escape. If it escapes, it will create uh, very bad storms, okay. and you would not want that at the time. So many of these grimoires contain what you might call spells or processes, I suppose. They're very specific, aren't they? You have to use, if you want to follow these, you've got to use particular types of blood on particular days when the moon is doing a particular thing. 
it's hard to tell, I guess, but why do you think those were written down in such a specific way? Oh, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I suppose, how, do, how, did, how did anyone find out that that was the way to do it? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. I, I, I don't know. But the thing is also where, like, we find one grimoire and the other one, and they have the same symbol, but then the instructions are not the same. Not the same. Yeah, so yeah. it's really hard. You cannot say anything is yeah. right or wrong. So. And I read one interpretation as well that says that the way that Icelandic magic works, if it, if it does work, mm -hmm. is that these are just guidelines. So, and they're metaphors as well. If you are told that you have to, for example, carve something on your forehead. It doesn't literally mean that. It just means you could maybe stick it on with a bit of paper or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, and yeah. also, that, like this magic uh, is that you have to steal the first coin. I think that's quite enough. Like, so you're doing something yeah. bad. Yes, and, yes. And, and, and you know, this will to gather more money is not so good. And then I want to well, talk about Yes, and talking of the will to gather yes. money, I'm standing <laughs> in front of the famous necropants. Uh, how to describe this? This is the, the skin of the bottom half of a man, his legs and his private parts as well. And I must say that when we were here four years ago, my partner was disappointed that this wasn't, as he put it, a real pair of necropants. This is a replica. So, well, how could it be a real pair? <laughs> <laughs> well, a real pair if you, you know. I actually got once an email someone who wanted to donate the skin. To really? us, yeah. You could have, but, um, but I mean, it, would, would it then have to be used to make it real? I wonder. Yeah, you mean like that? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. <laughs> let, well, let's talk about how it's supposed to be used because it's a pretty gruesome sight, obviously. If you imagine what I've just described, the bottom half of a man skinned. Um, how was this supposed to be used and what was supposed to happen? So to make your own necropants, you have to make a deal with someone who's alive that you're allowed to skin the person from waist down. It has to be a man because the scrotum plays an important part. And so after they die, you cannot kill them. You have to skin them. And uh, you have to steal a coin again from a poor widow and make a necropant, a magical stave, put these two things in the scrotum and then put the pants on. And they will become like your own skin, but you will be able to reach into the scrotum and get some money. Right. So, so the, the, the coin that you have stolen will like multiply, but you cannot take the original one. It's, you know, ruined <coughs> then. So it's very gruesome. And I think it it's also kind of, maybe it's uh, trying to tell us like to get money is you need, will need to get, do some bad things yes. or it's kind of, and, you know. And, and <laughs> if, you, if you want to take them off, you've got to um, get the person that's wearing them next to step in one leg at a time, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you don't want to die in them because otherwise your your soul is condemned forever. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not planning to die in them. I'm not planning no. to, to put them on. <laughs> what is the stave? Because we've talked a lot about staves, and these are the magical markings, which are usually consist of circles and semicircles and lines and, and in various configurations. So this one here, Naubruck, this is a stave that is used only with the necropants? Yes, exactly. From the Westfjords, diagonally across the country, pretty much, to East Iceland. I went to the University of Iceland Research Centre in East Iceland and I spoke to Unna Berna Karlsdottir about a research project taking place into the history of reindeer found across and only across Iceland's eastern quarter. She told me about the research project and about the fact that their relationship with humans in Iceland is a complex one. They are only common in East Iceland and they are only allowed to be in East Iceland. Okay. They are not okay. allowed to be elsewhere, although they would want to, but they are not allowed to I because see. of disease prevention in connection with the sheep herding and sheep farming in Iceland. 
So they are in the east of Iceland and interesting as such as uh, exceptional wildlife in the Icelandic mm -hmm. animal. And what is the history then of that creature in East Iceland? How far back can we trace it, I guess? We have to go back to the 18th century. It's correct that they were in more places in Iceland than just in the east. They were brought to the southwest and mm -hmm. the north and to here in the east, but they only survived in east of Iceland in the wilderness, the highland of East Iceland, and they became extinct in the southwest and in the middle of the north. What is it that you study about them here at the university? Mm. When I came here first, I came here as uh, to become a, a director of the Heritage Museum of East Iceland, and I realized as an academic researcher that there wasn't much in the human science study research on the reindeer in Iceland. There mm -hmm. was a plenty of biological research and I was lucky enough to have brilliant biologists who mm -hmm. have had done a lot of research and they helped me along a lot. For example, with the exhibition that I made about the reindeer. But I saw this was obviously an unexplored field for me as mm -hmm. a researcher. And these animals are only living in East Iceland, and yes. I realized there is a special relationship, also cultural. The reindeer has a cultural place as well as a natural one. What is the place then of the reindeer in human society as far back as you have traced it? What has been the relationship between humans and reindeer here? It has been love and hate in the history and that was it surprised me how much debate there was mm -hmm. earlier on about reindeer as an animal in Iceland. It was imported species. Icelanders didn't know reindeer mm -hmm. when it was brought here in the 18th century but Danish and Icelandic officials they asked for reindeer to be exported from Norway to Iceland as a beneficiary for a poor nation yeah. in, in Iceland in, in extremities and in hard years when the sheep was falling and yeah. dying off in the winter. They were intended as meat? Yes, they were imported. They were intended as a strong survivor to survive in the Icelandic environment and replace the sheep in hard years. The idea was to tame them, to herd them, mm -hmm. as was done in the Sami state in, in Norway. But that didn't happen in Iceland. They just were put ashore and they ran off to the mountain. There was no one to do anything. Yeah. The Icelanders didn't know how to handle reindeer. And so they just became a wild herd. And soon enough, as soon as in the end of the 18th century and in the 19th, 19th century, gradually more, there were complaints from mm -hmm. the farmers about the reindeer. People said the number of the reindeer was growing too fast. They were competing with the sheep with winter grassland and they ate the, the reindeer moss, which people also picked for their mm. food. So the, the reindeer was in competition with yeah. the humans for food and, and, and grassland for their livestock. So the reindeer was looked at soon after it was imported to Iceland with some hostility. Some mm. said it was a useless animal or even a plague. Or a pest, yeah. A pest. It sounds like there was yeah. regret then at yeah, the idea they, of introducing they, the ring. Yes, they absolutely regretted it, said that intentions were good, but it was a mistake. Okay. The Icelandic officials said just few years after the import, so mm -hmm. it was a ecological but, but, disaster. Yeah. We use a modern frame for it. Not a mistake that could easily be reversed. No, they couldn't Can't, gather them yeah, and, yeah. and just kill them all off, or they couldn't absolutely not send them back. But then it gradually became 
obvious already in the 19th century that the reindeer would be a hunting prey in Iceland mm-hmm. and nothing less. There wouldn't be any reindeer farmers. Yeah. It would be a wildlife and, and a hunt. Today, that's still the view on reindeer in Iceland, that it's, it's a prey for wildlife mm-hmm. hunting and popular as such. The history of reindeer in East Iceland is also the part of the country where you will find, and I think you will find, the Lagerfjörd worm, of whom there have been several sightings and reports apparently since 1345. This worm, I think, as somebody who was born and grew up very close to Loch Ness, may well just be related to the famous monster Nessie. I went to Skuthjukloister on the lakeside to meet Skuli Björn Gunnarsson and to hear more about the worm and whether it's still seen today and about some of those other sightings over the years. It has a long history and uh, and also, I mean, recent sightings. So, yes. So uh, I don't doubt it. No, indeed. Well, we'll get to those recent sightings. But this creature, as I understand it, started off life as a slug in a box. Yes, a slug or a small, a small worm. That is the uh, that is the folk tale behind the origin of of uh, of the worm monster. So, mm. so the old tale says that there was a little girl on a farm um, by the lake that she was given a golden ring uh, or a gold brooch, and uh, she had learned stories about that if you would put a gold under under a slug or a a worm, yes. that it would grow. The gold would grow. So she put it uh, along with a slug or a worm in a small box and hid it. And then when she returned to it, then uh, the slug or the worm had grown. And uh, also the gold, but yes. she became afraid and threw the box out into the lake where it still kept going, growing. And, uh, and yeah, ended up with uh, terrifying the people uh, living on the banks of, of Lavrud. Yes. Let's talk about some of those sightings, because she, he, it is spotted. Yeah, it's spotted. I mean, it's been it's been uh, the first written evidence about it is in the annals from uh, from 1345. So it's it's from the 14th century. And yeah. then it's mentioned very often. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the, on the map that Guðbrandur uh, Thorlaugsson, the bishop, made in the 16th century, it was actually there's this inscription that that this monster appears when mm. when something dreadful is going to happen when we are, Iceland is having a catastrophe. So, so it's been uh, it's been seen uh, many times. Each century seems to be, and 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 also then recently. So and. Um, well, the most famous one is probably the sighting up here in the river of of some worm-like swimming creature in the in the river that mm. a farmer uh, caught on a camera and became viral on YouTube. And uh, I was just checking that uh, it has five million views <laughs> at the moment. So the, the monster's not shy then. The monster is happy to be filmed we'll put a link up to that video on the page that accompanies this episode but for anyone that's not seen the worm or the monster what what does it look like uh 
Well, most of the descriptions uh, just describe some uh, the humps of it appearing up uh, above the surface of the lake, mm. and that is also then related to the to the folk tale because in the tale it says that uh, because it was uh, yeah destroying something on the banks of Laerflod, uh, people uh, got help from mm. Finns or Samish people yes. from the Nordic to 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 try to tried to uh, bend it down and uh, and they managed actually they, they the story says that uh, there was a couple of them that came to Iceland and and managed to to get hold of the ver monster uh, uh, diving into the lake and uh, and uh, managed to bend bind it on on head and tail so after that it was only possible okay. for it to wriggle and and lift its hump and uh of course uh making huge waves but but so so that is uh, some some oval oval creature uh, very big and lifting its hump above the surface of the lakes that's most mm. of the descriptions of both old and new and that's because the Finns were only able to tie the monster down yeah. were they brought over to get rid of the monster to kill the monster was that the intention do you think uh, I think that was the intention probably and um, maybe they have been promised to be able to keep the gold <laughs> but uh, but uh, they 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 only managed to to yeah. to tie it down it's, on the head and you, you say as well that the monster appears before a time of catastrophe in Iceland I suppose the last catastrophe would be the Kreppa, the uh, the recession the financial crisis did the monster make an appearance in the the late 2000s well some say but but then the thing is that we don't hear about all the sightings I mean yes, it's uh, yes. it's it's uh, it's also a kind of a, a taboo. I mean, it's uh, it's um, it's like in the 60s there was uh, there were some sightings of of the monster and uh, and um, the Icelandic writer Thorbergur Thorason he actually he uh, was very interested in this so he, he he came and spent some days or weeks here in the mm. in the area and. Uh, and was interviewing people and uh, gathering uh, old stories or mm -hmm. sightings uh, about it, and and uh, wherever he went, uh, people could always tell him something about it. But but uh, he uh, his final conclusion uh, in the report was actually that it's strange with the people of Jotunheimen. It's uh, they 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 don't believe what they see yes. because nobody uh, confessed to believe in the monster, but they had seen a lot of things. Yes, and, yes, and yes. So, and, and you have you seen the monster? Actually, I have not seen it, but but uh, but uh, my mother-in-law has seen it. Yes, I don't doubt that sighting. <laughs> and uh, also also my father actually when. Uh, I started. I started. Uh, uh, well, growing fond of the, of the worm monster. Uh, my father all of a sudden said that yes, when 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 he was young and was working on some road construction, he had a very strange sight, sighting up by the lake.
Well, on my trip, I didn't see the worm, but it's probably just because I wasn't looking hard enough, I think it's fair to say. Over the course of 2023, we also took a look on Roof English Radio at some of the things that you didn't used to be able to do in Iceland. I've been fascinated for some time by the quartet of activities that used to be impossible or illegal in the country. The buying of milk, for example, in a supermarket is not something that was legalised until around the late 1970s. The watching of television in July or on a Thursday would be another example. And maybe the most famous is the purchase and consumption of beer. If you didn't know, until 1989, beer was illegal in Iceland, or at least anything stronger than about 2% proof. Those rather weak beverages were sometimes uh, mixed with vodka, which weirdly was legal. And I'll just let you ponder as we sit here during this festive period what a mix of vodka and weak beer might have tasted like. I went to the National Museum of Iceland to speak to Helga Volitsen, curator of ethnology, who became something of a friend of Roof English Radio over the year, uh, to find out more. Yes, it was banned until the late 80s, uh, 1989, I think, was the, the, yeah. the ban was lifted. Which is an incredible thought, really, isn't it? It's just a little over 30 years. Yes. We'll get into why the ban was in place and why it was lifted, but it was only beer. Spirits weren't banned, and low-strength beer wasn't banned, so people would just mix the two and make their own disgusting-sounding beer, didn't they? It's very disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, uh, originally they all were banned, but the the ban was lifted in, in, like, chapters, so... Uh, first the wine, then the, the mm. spirits, and lastly the beer. Lastly the beer. So this was prohibition? It was prohibition, and it yeah. starts in the early 20th century as part of the prohibition movement all right. over Europe and, and the US. It just gets lifted in a weird way. It's an economic way. We're at one of the exhibits at the museum. We're standing next to some drinking mugs and some drinking cups, and I, I guess what this shows firstly is the importance that beer and ale played in Iceland's deeper history. Drinking is something important. You would drink when you had guests over, uh, traveling from farm to farm. Uh, it was important to drink uh, as part of the law. For instance, when, when you had uh, a wedding, mm. um, you would drink the health of the, the bride and groom, and you would drink the health of the families, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, also, as part of, of heathen rituals, you would often have mjöður, uh, meat that you would give to the gods and give to the land and, and so on and so forth. So I think alcoholic beverage was a big part of culture for a long time. Yes. Okay, let's talk about the lifting of the ban. And as you say, that happened in stages. Beer was last. It started in the 1920s uh, because one of the biggest exports uh, in Iceland was the cod that we sold to Spain, salted cod. Mm. And the Spaniards simply said, if you want to sell us your cod, you have to buy our wine. So um, it, it, it was a simple economic mm. step to, to keep going, to keep be, being able to export. We had to import as well. But beer was last. We keep coming back to this. <laughs> beer was the last thing to have its ban lifted. There must have been a lot of pressure in the 70s and 80s from people who felt this was crazy. Yeah. It, it, there was a lot of pressure, yes, yeah. definitely. But also people thought that Icelanders would drink way too, too badly, in a bad way, too much and too, too hard. Uh, we had the Pilsner, that's 2.25%. Sort of light beer. It's yeah. a light beer. Mm. And it tastes like a light beer also. 
it doesn't taste of much. I, I remember people who studied in Denmark uh, who told that you had the, the dorms where you had people from all of Scandinavia and then mm. Iceland and the Faroe Isles and so on. And the Danes and the Norwegian and Swedish, they would maybe drink one beer or two beer on a weekday evening. And then they had a, a, on the weekend, they would maybe drink three or four beers. While yeah. the Icelanders and the people from the Faroe Islands, they would drink tea on, on weekdays. And then a whole case of beer on a Friday and another one on Saturday. And often really strong beer, seven plus percent. Yes. So the, the culture of drinking was quite different. Uh, from what you see in many other places. Yeah. What happens then when the ban is lifted? Do those fears come true? Does the country lose its mind? I think for a while we did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the times very vividly, not because I was not, drunk, not because but because drunk. I was young. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today, for my generation, it just seems silly. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we drink with our friends and... and uh, a beer or two isn't yes. a problem. But you can still see it, though, in, in, the, in how Icelanders drink, because often they binge drink a lot when they drink. And uh, on a Friday or Saturday night, you will see a lot of very, very drunk young people yes. downtown. And I think also um, part of this ban is that people, the drinking age in Iceland is still 20 years old. It's not 18, mm. like in, in the rest of the Nordic countries, for instance. Now, never mind... Barbieheimer, never mind those two big box office hits. In Iceland over the course of 2023, one film really did capture the public's imagination, and that was the Icelandic film Driving Mum, Auferth Methmumu, a critical and commercial hit. The death of Jon's mother forcing him to take on a journey with her corpse in the back seat to fulfil her last wish. A very unusual road movie. I caught up with Odni Sen, the film scholar, to hear more about the film, which had a very successful run at Reykjavik's iconic Bioparadis cinema extended. I must say first that uh, this is a film that I, I see a lot of films and it's necessary for me in my line of work and to stay on sort of top on, on things for my students. Mm. But it's not often that I experience a sort of film, uh, have a film experience like the one I had when I saw the movie. Why? Um, because the film is, it shows a very dreary Icelandic reality. <laughs> it, it happens in 1980. It's about uh, a man called Jón, uh, played by Thruster Leos masterfully played by Thruster Leos and they live in such a quintessential central Icelandic sort of dreariness they they live in a sort of um, very isolated isolated place um, she's obviously a very domineering woman and they sit and knit and listen to old weather forecasts <laughs> on cassette and this is no spoil because it happens yeah, in yeah. the first few minutes of the film and show sort of his so we are brought right into his Gosh. sort of reality mm -hmm. and um, the film is in black and white and I believe um, the choice of the director for that was to show because I think it mirrors the frame of mind of this man and I think it's also a symbolic sort of for his mm. personal journey because it's a road movie 
black and white, um, of course, with the Icelandic landscape. So it's sort of difficult, beautiful, stunning at the same time because we get into his mind it, and, and he goes sort of on a road with his mother and uh, his dog Bresnev. And Bresnev, it's, <laughs> it's a very sort of smart way yeah. to let us know that we are in 1980. Yes. And also the dress, <laughs> how they dress and also sort of the old sort of Icelandic, um, shops on the sort of on the road that you don't have maybe today. Yeah. Well, tell me about those changes then, because I think maybe the eighties were the last point at which the old Iceland existed before tourists started to come. As you say, this is a road movie, and my memories of driving around Route One, even in the late nineteen nineties, much of it was still gravel; it hadn't been surfaced properly. Yes, and I think in the 19, uh, sort of 1970s, late 70s, 1980s, you know, um, just just Reykjavik was hardly, yeah. had hardly begun. And, you know, going down there as a teenager, you know, and, and be with friends. And, you know, it was it was very dreary and there was nothing happening and it was sort of... You, you only went down there and you, you got drunk and, the, you know, partied with friends in the street and in the freezing cold. Yeah. And there was nothing. There was nothing. There was one bar open. And then can you can imagine, you know, in the, in the countryside how isolated yeah. it was. Um, people used to go to certain kind of balls called Hlöðepöl, which may mean barn balls. And they basically sort of danced yeah. in the barn and somebody played the guitar or and and got drunk or so it he show, uh, the director shows masterfully you yeah. know um this kind of reality and it brings us back to that reality but also he mixes it with um, Fellini's uh, influences and that is what makes this film so special driving mum over the course of 2023, we were joined very regularly by Lydia Athanasopoulou, music journalist in Tsiglifjörda, who guided us through the history of Icelandic music by looking at and listening to a whole variety of different genres. I think we were up to about 22 by the end of the run. Of course, you'll have heard Lydia back on Roof English Radio just before Christmas on the 24th of December, uh, playing some favourite Icelandic Christmas classic songs. Well, over the course of the year, as I say, we listened to the history of Icelandic music through a variety of different uh, forms and genres. We heard some hip-hop and rap. We heard music made and written for the accordion in Iceland. And we'll hear some clips from those shows in just a few moments. But let's start with a very particular form of music a very particular form of folk music in Iceland called Rimur. I want to turn to a name that might just be familiar with or to those who are even peripherally acquainted with Rimur already, Steindor Andersson. Tell me about him. So, yeah, Steindor Andersson is probably the most uh, famous representer of singing uh, Rimur music. Um, He's excellent at his craft, and he he was already uh, you know popular in Iceland for this tradition. But he he probably rose to international fame because he ended up uh, working with uh, Sigurós and Hilmar Ern Hilmarsson, mm. um, who was also famously in, in Psychic TV and and has done 
uh, movie soundtracks, and uh, I think he's still head of the Aushatrofelayev. Rimur, like we said earlier, are epic tales that are alliterated, the sort of rhyming ballads, usually a cappella. And uh, Steintor does this absolutely fantastically, and he's he's studied it deeply. And um, they often employ complex metaphors, cryptic rhymes, and uh, a lot of the songs from the Bjartni uh, collection are well-known, and they've been reimagined by various uh, singers, including Björk. Uh, mm-hmm. on one of her records. Um, but yeah, Steintor Andersen is is most well known for for singing these. And um, he, he does a, a fantastic job of it. And, and I think one of the reasons why I like it so much is because he does, he, he has done collaborations where uh, it's sort of rima and other types of music, but he has uh, records and he has performed strictly rima the way it probably was one. 200, 300 years ago. And um, I think it's it, it as great as it is, of course, to have evolution of music and, and have old traditions transferred to a contemporary age. I think it is also important to be able to uh, have examples of of any tradition in its purest form. And I think Steintor does this really fantastically.
That was Steindor Andersson, and he is also a familiar name if you examine the credits and indeed listen to, for example, the Sigaros album uh, Oven's Raven Magic, which is a live album, a live recording from, I think, about 10 years ago. He appears on there, along with Hilmar Un, uh, Hilmarsson and various other performers um, as well. So he probably is the most likely, I would say, Lydia, to be known by those with a, a passing interest in Riemann. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I first, I think the first, um, Stendor Andersen was the first musician that I found out about uh, in connection to Rimur, also because of the connection to Zigoros, but because he he is also very well known and he has uh, made an effort to record a lot of these songs and be member of you know various uh, Rima singing groups around the country. So this is Ruv English and I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for your company. I am again in Sigelfjörde today with Lydia Athanasopoulou, the music journalist who's been guiding us through the history of Icelandic music. And just remind us of where we are. We did mention this a few weeks ago when we started uh, this sequence of shows, but we're in a beautiful building in Sigelfjörde in the north of Iceland. Remind us where we are, Lydia. So today we are housed by the beautiful Bjarni Thornsteinsen Folk Music Centre. Uh, one of the oldest buildings in town, um, which is a small museum, but a very important museum dedicated to the lifelong work of Bjarni Thornstensen and uh, traditional and folk music in Iceland. Now, we did mention last week that today's show is dedicated to music made by and featuring a particular instrument. I didn't say what the instrument was, but I did say that in this house there are, or there is, one Excellent example of such. So we're going to walk up the stairs in this former house, which is now this museum. And if memory serves, we go to the left? No, we don't. We go... It's downstairs, isn't it? <laughs> I have no sense of direction, so I was confidently marching up the stairs where there is the audiovisual room, but no, <laughs> no evidence of the instrument to which I was so confidently referring but now I've been guided into the right room and the instrument in question is the accordion. And I'm standing in front of one now. Uh, this accordion is from around a hundred years ago or more. Uh, it was taken to Norway in 1919 and it now finds itself here in Siglafjörður. What do we know about this, <laughs> this accordion and what part does the accordion play in Icelandic music? So well, out of breath, I didn't need to walk up those stairs. <laughs> So yes, we, we are seeing in front of us a beautiful old uh, accordion um, that has been very nicely uh, been on loan to the uh, Folk Music Centre by the Icelandic Herring Era Museum, which is just up the road. Yes, and a previous subject of a, a previous podcast. Indeed, a, an award-winning museum. Yes. I encourage all our listeners to take a visit. Um, so we're looking at an accordion which the Icelanders call a harmonica, or just nika. 
And, uh, you know, this can be perhaps a bit confusing to English speakers as we usually think of a harmonica as uh, the yeah. sort of mouth organ or often called yeah. a French harp. But um, they should not be confused. Here in Iceland, a harmonica is an accordion. And you might think of it or call it a squeeze box. Now, there is one here in this glass case in this museum, but we wanted to just look at this one because today we are looking at and listening to Icelandic music, which features the accordion. And I wasn't sure at first if drilling down to one particular instrument would give us enough scope. But as we're going to discover, it absolutely does. It does. And I was very surprised when I first arrived in Iceland, especially listening to music on the radio or if I was at you know my local pub or the bakery and they had um, you know music on. Uh, a lot of the music did feature accordion, an accordion, and uh, this struck me quite a bit because I haven't noticed this pretty much anywhere else. But, you know, there are reasons why the accordion did proliferate here in Iceland, um, perhaps more so than uh, the piano or the guitar, because mm. especially the piano, you know, it's a very expensive, very heavy instrument. And the accordion, one of the reasons it's proliferated is because it had a major role in uh, the dance culture here in Iceland. So in Iceland, uh, we have dances that uh, happen every few weeks or a few times during each season. And uh, the whole town or even uh, sort of the neighboring towns collect and there's live music and singing and dancing. And uh, the accordion, one of the reasons, uh, you know, it, it became so popular is because it was transportable yes. and it was cheap. And, um, and easy to learn. I mean, I, we're not talking about a period of formal music lessons here. I do find it quite hard, but I am very impressed by yes. uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's much more complex, I think, than most people might think. And you For can sure. get amazing sounds from it. And, um, you know, because it has been present at so many, you know, parties and gatherings and, and festivities and Sjómanatagurinn, uh, which is the uh, day once a, a year that the Icelanders uh, celebrate uh, people who go to sea, seamen and fishermen and seafarers. Um, and so it's, it has been present from uh, uh, even last century uh, here in Iceland. So the, the first reference um, of the accordion uh, being played at a, at a party um, is in 1841. So that's quite a while ago. It's coming up on 200 years ago. That's astonishing, isn't it? We're going to hear examples of music which has the accordion at its core, at its heart, and maybe we can hear the first one of those now. Yeah, so the first one I've selected is uh, Dance of Althoranum by Braki Hlithberg, who is uh, probably the most famous uh, accordion player in Iceland. Uh, he learned to play at a really young age, at, at the age of 10, and he, he released uh, four albums at least and wrote a lot of his own music. And uh, this one probably you may have already heard on the radio. Thank you. 
of the main artists from Rottweiler Hundar were the brothers Blas Roca and Cesar A. Um, and they were the first to use their native tongue, really impacting the local scene. Their debut album was a success from 2001. And after that album came out, almost 13 other Icelandic rap albums were released within a year. So this drastically demonstrates how, you know, Icelandic rap was on the rise uh, at the end of the 90s, turn of the millennium. Um, they only had two albums from 2001 and 2002. Um, the first one was released just before Christmas, always a good season to release a record. Uh, over 10,000 copies sold out, which is quite a feat for, for the Icelandic numbers. Yes. And um, some of them were, of course, considered a bit controversial for radio play, um, some of them were picked up by foreign labels. Uh, the, the first album was picked up by foreign labels and overall sold 500,000 copies worldwide. So that's more than the Icelandic population today, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back in the 90s. A lot more. <laughs> so we're going to listen to Brekusöngur from their second album, which was written in reaction to a political scandal involving a member of government using government funds for personal use, always great fodder for rap music. And this track actually got shut down during a live performance of it uh, because of this critical lyrical content. So okay. it also goes to show that, uh, of course, rappers can sing about chains and money and fast cars and everything. But when they rap about political things, it shows that, you know, it actually has an effect. And we see that from this song being shut down during the live show. Hello, we 
Sköta här kan köpa mig till några miljoner Här kan fler i falska kita att börja plötter Bara kvia brickor mig Ista bilden bara plötter Och hata hon med heavy hickor Han bråa ekon ut och kvia brickor Jag målar fucking silas nutcase Han kunde facetack i läppor Än bara som ändå svåra dig Som nu är lögnig här med mig Sen får äta man äkta fader Jag fucking brävlade Han är en kus och griper kita och fannan hav Han gör Reku Songer from XXX Rottweiler Hunda. Who sh- who shut the song down then? Was it the politician who was being uh, criticised? I mean, it's difficult to imagine that a, a political song or one which satirises a political scandal in this way could be taken off stage, closed yeah, down. I I think it. W- so the the song was written about uh, Arne Jonsson, and I think he might have actually been the one to request that this song be shut down. If okay. people if, if people are interested, they can Google the incident. <laughs> I just have visions of him running into the venue and finding the, the feed for the PA, pulling the mm-hmm. blood, literally. <laughs> pulling the blood, yeah. <laughs> Music of all kinds played on Roove English Radio over the course of the year. Icelandic music in the form of rap and hip-hop and accordion music there and folk music as Rimur as well. Just some of the contributions made uh, by Lydia Athanasopoulou over the course of 2023. Let's stay with music, shall we, for our next clip from this year. I met the author's director and performer of a musical being performed in English over the course of the year called Good Morning Faggy, which is a pretty bold title in many ways and really gets to the heart of what this piece was about. The actor Bjarni Snæbjörnsson, who's gay, finds his teenage diaries and is so taken by the discovery that he decides he has to write a show based on his childhood ponderings and letter to his mother. And of course, it needed to be in the form of a musical. He navigates his personal history, he has a nervous breakdown while he's doing so, but he knows he still has to write the play. So, he gets together with composer Alex Ingi and my other guest here, writer and director Greta Christine Omasdottir. He tries to understand what happens and what happened to cause his mental collapse. And we get to the heart of why this word faggy 
is used in the title. Now, Bjarni, when mm. you found these diaries, mm. were you surprised by their contents? Had you forgotten what you'd written? Yes, I had forgotten almost everything. Uh, and it's, it, it was a journey to uh, rediscover all of this and kind of dive into the, you know, my thoughts and my feelings. And because when I wrote them, I realized afterwards was I was just trying to like grasp my reality mm. and like my thoughts and my, you know, dark thoughts as well of during this time period when I was coming out of the closet. Uh, and, you know, and also kind of see before I came out, like see how I wrote differently yeah. to actually when I decided to come out, then I just dove into the truth of it all. But before I was just like skimming on the surface of my life, kind of just like describing things very boringly, like about my bus rides to this place <laughs> and this dinner was this. And, uh -huh. you know, I met this person and we did this. It was like nothing in depth. But then when I actually came out and you know in real life yeah. i started to kind of go deeper and is it a clear line can you tell it is would someone be able to tell where you came out if they didn't know from, from i think the so yeah think? for yeah. sure mm -hmm. i would i would say mm -hmm. so um <clears throat> yeah and and you know there's a lot of you know hard truths uh and a lot of uh very very funny entries mm. <laughs> you know they're just so silly and stupid i mean we're all ridiculous and stupid when we are like teenagers and yes. like in our adolescence like right it's so yeah. awkward and yeah. that's what's so beautiful about it like we get to meet this teenage version of Bjartli yes. that just thinks he's a philosopher and completely and so your input into this was was what were you sort of casting an eye over what was written and thinking that works that doesn't or did, were you able to see something that Bjarni maybe wasn't able to see because he was too close to the I material? think definitely yeah, yeah. um that what happened like in the process of creating like first it was all these funny things and we wanted to do like a really like drag show like mm -hmm. have you in stilettos and and sort of uh, tackling uh, queer issues and what what's happening uh, now 20 years after these diaries and letters were written yeah uh, but then what happens like as we start going through this the the darkness comes like then we start to see and it becomes like sort of a reckoning um, with the past. And we start to sort of accumulate um, evidence of a life that's maybe not so perfect. Mm -hmm. Like our first premise is that Iceland is like a queer paradise. And here we are like so tolerant. We're so liberal. Like we have, we score so high on, you know, every, in every yes. international scale. And our identity like as people here is that we've got it all figured out you know but we were sort of driven to dive deeper like in the conversation and to actually talk to our allies uh that there's actual pain here mm -hmm. so when you say when we come to you and we talk about our queerness and we come whether it's that we are coming out or we are discussing our reality and our life and our feelings it's actually hurtful when you say well i don't care that you know that doesn't bother me at all like then you make it about you like mm -hmm. as the ally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. instead of like and we and all this um 
we started to learn about all of these concepts like uh, microaggressions and internalized homophobia. And that's sort of what accumulated through this research. Like it took us like five, six years to write this. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it was emotionally and like spiritually, mentally a a big challenge. Uh, Not the least for Bjatni, of course, Mm. it's like his story. But we are all like three queer people who are all close friends, like who are Mm. um, leading this. Uh, We write write it together and we uh, make the music and 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 we're all so we there's a lot of things that we share so it was very personal because mm-hmm. i think there is something surprising there maybe but particularly for listeners who aren't in iceland who as you say look at the league tables mm. and look at the fact that iceland is always at the very top of the tables that yeah. you'd want yeah. to be at the top yes. of yeah. a country that you know elected the first democratically elected lesbian prime minister some yeah. some years ago on gender issues, Iceland and the mm-hmm. parliament there seems to have just quietly got on with stuff without making yeah. terribly yeah. much of a fuss about it. That mm-hmm. seems to be the perception. Yeah, yeah, but those are statistics and numbers, yes. not feelings. Yes, yeah. and like not that, the actual... That so that so what, what's, what's the difference? And is this work and is your company about trying to emphasise and, and illuminate those differences? Well, yeah, I mean, we strive for like creating a more just beautiful and more beautiful, compassionate world. Yes. Uh and I mean, yes, we're doing great. And I think that's like such a nice opportunity for us. Like if people want to look to Iceland, like as a leading uh, country internationally in queer rights and in in women's rights. And mm. uh, if we are supposed to be leading, I think we should also be leading like how brave we are in having these conversations. Yes. Not just the statistics and the numbers yeah. and how we're doing mm-hmm. like statistically. Yes. It's also emotional. It's human. Yeah. Like we are And and also regarding this is to like actually look uh, at the past as it was painful yeah. and all the denying of truths mm. like the HIV pandemic. Yeah, um, and that's important, isn't it? Because and all of those things, because you know, whatever, whatever the situation at, is now, it wasn't like that fairly recently. Oh, exactly. And yeah. we just need to take a hard look in the mirror and see that the pain is still there. Yeah, from not only that, you know, the HIV um, virus, mm. but all the different, you know, ways yeah. we were outcast and shunned, and not only queer people, but like different. People from different nationalities, yes. you know, yeah, in Iceland, marginalized, and marginalized groups. Yeah. Let's head back to Skithi Cloister in East Iceland. We didn't find the worm on our first visit, but I did find the home, the family home of the Icelandic writer Gunnar Gunnarsson, who had a mansion built on a farm in this area in 1939. The house was built as he returned to Iceland after achieving fame during his 30 years in Denmark, and as an author. He certainly did. I was guided round this amazing home by Olof, better known as and always called Skota, to hear more about Gunnar Gunnarsson, the writer, and his home. Well, let's talk about Gunnar Gunnarsson a little bit, and then we'll talk about the house. As a writer, I guess to English-speaking readers, he's maybe not as well known as Laxness and other Icelandic writers. How does he fit in, would you say? Um, well, he's a little bit earlier than Laxness, for, for example. He, uh, he got his book publishing contract in 1912, started publishing books in Danish, and we had to be translated over to Icelandic as two other languages. Uh, the Good Shepherd, his best-known English book, is, was published, what, 1936? 
Halldór Laxness, of course, got the Nobel Prize. Uh, Gunnar was nominated four times. He just mm. never got it. Never got it. Always <laughs> the bridesmaid. Always, <laughs> yeah. I even have a like part of the wall where it would fit really well to have a. <laughs> so the he's kept a space for the. For <laughs> oh the yes, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. of oh, course, oh. you know. But uh, being one of the older generation, but he is in a way our first professional writer that is just a writer. He pretty much never had any other job, and he kind of led the way for a lot of the other writers mm. later. And he was born very close to here, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was just born a little bit further down the valley where the yeah. church is, Valtjostadur. Uh, he himself was born in, well, basically his dad was a worker at the farm. Um, so for him to go to school to Denmark was a big feat. Yes. Uh, we joke about it that he was supposed to be in school for two or three years and come back, but he refused to come back <laughs> because he wanted to be a writer crazy idea um, but there's a little bit of truth to the joke because that was always the plan he always dreamed about that there must have been money either in his writing or in the family or both because this is a sizable property in the writing not in the family the all family came from uh, the writing. yeah all came from the writing mm. uh, his family was just well his parents started up as workers on the farms and mm. they lived in smaller farms uh, his mom actually passed away when he was seven but um yeah n- no real fam- family money. It's all from the books. All from the books. Yeah. Okay, and built in 1939, as we said. Yeah. We're standing in... Well, tell me which part of the house this we're standing This is the office. Um, even though they built the house in 1939, they only live here for nine years. So they give the farm and everything to the government in 1948. So we were lucky enough when we opened up the museum to get mm. some of the pieces back. So we are standing in front of his desk. And his typewriter. Uh, and his typewriter, yeah. last typewriter. Uh, he got this for a birthday gift when he was 80. Really? And I mean, yeah, you see how much old typewriters are going for now in Kolaportith. This one is heavy enough to probably kill a person, but uh, my favorite piece about this typewriter is actually not connected to Gunnar. Mm. I had a younger visitor here a few years ago who asked me if this was a laptop with printer <laughs> included. It's a beautiful old IBM. Definitely doesn't have a touchscreen. <laughs> the family home of Gunnar Gunnarsson in East Iceland. Let's get right back up to date. And indeed, for our final clip from 2023, let's head into the future. Composer and singer Rolfur Simonsson writing a new opera this year with a difference because the libretto and lyrics had already been written when he sat down to compose the opera. They'd already been written by artificial intelligence. So I spoke to Rolfur during the year about the work and about trusting a part of the creative process to a machine, the funding of the opera, uh, which will be available to see performed at some point in Iceland. There are now examples that you can easily find of artificial intelligence being used to recreate with amazing accuracy the vocal style of Johnny Cash or Michael mm-hmm. Jackson or The Weeknd or whoever it happens to be. I mean, you can imagine in five years' time, potentially, that the technology will be able to replicate the voice of any opera singer who's ever lived. Is yep. that frightening to you? And is, is this project about you trying to get ahead of that to an extent? Well, yes and no. I, it's not frightening, frightening to me. Uh, in, but we do have to find a way to use this technology as a tool and not, not let it control our actions and uh, and our art. 
So, and that's, I guess, what I'm trying to do with this project as well. Mm. Uh, and also just as a measuring stick, where does it stand now? However, I did, I did uh, uh, notice that uh, in the time from when I got the idea and did some experiments with this until when the uh, writing of the actual libretto happened, uh, it had gotten much better mm-hmm. in these four or five months uh, that passed between because it's had it has of course access to all the all the words on the internet and everywhere yes. and and learn from it. So yeah, I, so in a way, <laughs> that's uh, I mean not not frightening but concerning. I mean I, yes. I think we do we do have to to uh, we do have to find. Uh, ways where uh, to uh, uh yeah what's the word uh, to find ways where it's uh where, where it helps us so it serves us and we're not yeah yeah and, and, and maybe you know yeah. set some rules in uh, in uh, the artistic society and society how to use this technology and uh, i think that's very important but that's why it's very important to study it Composer and singer Rolfa Simonson. This is Roove English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for listening today or tomorrow. There is more from Roove English with all the news from Iceland in English at ruv.is/slash English. Roove English Radio is daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster Roove. <laughs>